0: Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're in the final chapter of the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read for us today the first six verses. Hear now God's word from Hebrews 13 verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray together. Father, we lay hold to these promises that you give us, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, you are here to help us, we can walk and run the Christian life with courage. I pray that you would apply that to our hearts and our minds today, and that you would teach us, and that you would change us to look like your son. We ask it in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I love how this passage in Hebrews 13 comes together because all the while that we've been studying Hebrews, it's been building towards this point. And of late, we've been ready to ask ourselves the questions, Lord, what would you have me do? How do I take the book of Hebrews and practically begin to apply this book to my life? What is it that you're calling me to do? And to answer that question, we need to look at the immediate context. Because in chapter 11, we have this reminder of what lies behind us. It's this cloud of witnesses. We're thinking about application and we think to the cloud of witnesses and we remember Abel has faith and it costs him his life. Abraham and Sarah, they have faith and they become exiles and strangers. Rahab, she has faith and she is pitted against her entire hometown city. And that all begs the question, if ark building and civil disobedience and being sawn in two make up this chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, when I turn the page to my life, what is God calling me to do? What's my chapter of faith going to look like? Well, hang on to that question. We're going to get there. If chapter 11 is what lies behind us, then chapter 12 is a reminder of what's up ahead of us, and that is the city of the living God. We run this race, and we see ahead of us the very presence of Jesus himself. He's in the New Jerusalem. He's on Mount Zion. He is surrounded by festal angels and this firstborn assembly. It is the living God who is ahead of us, and that itself begs the question, how do I begin to live as a citizen of that kind of kingdom now? What does that look like in my life today? What is God calling me to do? What is a life that is worthy of the gospel? And you think about those questions, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, and it's almost as if the writer to the Hebrews could turn to us now and he could say to us, this is what God's calling you to do. He wants every single person in this room to be a John the Baptist, right? Sell your possessions get rid of them, move to a desolate place. I want you to dress in camel hair. I want you to live off of locusts and wild honey. And if he called us to do that, we would say, That's actually really reasonable under the circumstances, right? I mean, I'm getting away with something. If I get to live my life like that, who would begin to push back on those kind of commands that God gives us? Because the person who reads an ethical command in Scripture, not least in Hebrews 13, and says, Lord, you're asking too much of me, is the person who has not been paying attention to the first 12 chapters of the book of Hebrews. There's no such thing as the phrase, too much in the economy of God. He has not once used that phrase in the gospel and the giving of his son, and there's no place for that kind of language for a born-again believer to respond to what he's offered. We don't have the right to say too much the price that Isaac paid, the price that Moses paid, the price that Samuel paid, stability, wealth, reputation, life itself. It was not too much. You bring those men and those women from Hebrews chapter 11 into a room together and you ask them about the price they paid, and I bet you to a person they would say, I had no idea what the Christian life was going to cost me. I had no idea when I started this thing what God was going to ask of me, and I'm glad I didn't because I may never have started this thing in the first place. But now I stand in the presence of Jesus. Now I stand in the city of the living God, and I promise you whatever I have given up in this life, I have been overpaid in the life of Jesus that I now enjoy forever and ever. There is no such thing as too much that God calls us to. And so we brace ourselves because the writer to the Hebrews turns from where we've been and where we're headed and he looks to each one of us and he says, all right then. You want to begin to apply the book of Hebrews. You want to put this thing into practice. You want to know how to approach God, who is a consuming fire. You want to know how to follow in the footsteps of these Old Testament saints. You want to know what in your life is going to last forever. Get out a pencil and write this down. This is what God is calling you to do. I want you to love each other. I want you to begin to show hospitality to one another. I I want you to remember the people in our midst who are being mistreated, and I want you to care for them. I want you to work really, really hard at your marriage, invest in that thing, and spend time in it. I want you to stop loving your money. Don't be greedy for it. And I want you to be sure to ask God when you need help because he will provide those things for you. Those six things in six verses, plus a few more that we'll hear next week, those things together, they constitute a Christian life that's being empowered by the Spirit, a life that is worthy of the gospel that God is calling us to. Now hang on a minute. Because you hear that list, and it's so earthy and plain. I mean, on the one hand, we had this buildup, and I was kind of dreading what God was going to ask me to do, how I was supposed to respond to the book of Hebrews, but on the other hand, I was also kind of hoping that he was going to ask me to do something really, really big for Jesus, and so you have this whiplash effect. We went from Mount Zion all the way to having people in our home and stop loving our money. And because of that whiplash, I wanted to entitle this sermon From the Celestial to the Terrestrial. But that's kind of cheesy, and John laughed at it when I pitched it to him. So I didn't name it that, but that's the effect that you have, right? You went from these beautiful scenes to this really earthy, plain stuff. But that is what God is calling us to do. We could look at all six of these today. We could say a word about each of these six instructions, but instead of doing that, I think it would be more helpful to just pick one and to go really deep in that, and then we have the rest of the week amongst ourselves to unpack these six things, which I know to do that in a passage like this, it kind of feels like Russian roulette, right? You've got six empty chambers, and you spin it, and you say, are we gonna talk about my lust today or my love of money? Where are we gonna land And today we're actually going to land on number two, verse two, hospitality. I chose this one because I think we all want to know what it means to entertain angels unaware. And I also personally need to be exposed again and again for my idols of personal space and comfort. For a man myself who treats my home like my fiefdom, that's my kingdom, and quiet nights with my family, they start to feel like an inalienable right that I have. I need the book of Hebrews to prod me in a brand new direction. And so it's to hospitality that we go. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now what on earth does he mean by entertaining angels? Because I've kind of always read this passage and assumed that it meant this one thing, and that is that when we have people over to our home, we kind of have a choice of who we want to have in our house. I could, on the one hand, invite people I already know, right? Those are people that I know, we're having them to our house, and if we do that, there is a 100% chance that they will end up being just normal human beings, right? So we have the Essex family over and they're hanging out with us and we already know them and they're just going to turn out to be the Essig family, right? Just plain vanilla human beings. That's it. Nothing special about it. Or you could do something crazy, right? You could have a stranger over. You meet somebody on Sunday morning and you invite them over and you don't know them that well. And then you've got like this 1% chance or 0.1% chance that at some moment during the evening, like over dessert and coffee, they're going to throw off a mask and doggone it, it's an angel. You thought you had a person, but it's an angel. It's the one time you overcooked the meatloaf and there's an angel in your midst and it's incredible. Well, that may be true, but I think I'm leaning towards a different interpretation after studying it this week and you could size this up and see what you want to take. But I think the writer has a story or a scene like Genesis 18 in his mind. Right There is a situation in which Abraham received these mysterious guests and they literally were angels that looked like people and he entertained angels unawares. And I think the writer to the Hebrews is, has that in the back of his mind, but what he's actually saying is, When you have a stranger over, they may turn out to be true believers who are a blessing to you. They are like angels. They are like messengers from God because you share a meal together and they extend the very blessing of God to you. I think he's meaning to say, not literal angels, but these are angel-like guests at your table. That's kind of where I lean. If this week you have somebody over and they unmask themselves and it's an angel, please come and tell me and I will retract what I just said. But until then, we'll kind of work with that interpretation. So this is kind of what he has in mind when he says that. Hospitality itself is everywhere in scripture and it's everywhere in early Christian writing. Hospitality is an essential part of the Christian life. Paul, he writes and he says, I want you as believers to outdo each other in showing honor to each other. And one of the ways you do that is by extending hospitality to one another. Peter, the Apostle Peter, when he writes, he says, when you do this, I want you to do it without grumbling, because hospitality is the joy of a believer who extends it. Jesus, he turns the whole thing on its head because he says, when you're inviting people over, I want you to try and do this. I want you to think about people who you can have in your home who cannot possibly afford to have you back in their home. And those are the people I want you to show hospitality to. That first command we read in verse 1, let brotherly love continue That's a beautiful command. It's a sweeping command, but it can be kind of abstract, right? I mean, how do I walk about in this world with a genuine, general sense of brotherly love? Hospitality puts hands and feet on that thing. Hospitality has a way of cutting through sentimentality. Because we can participate in demonstrations, we can post about social justice, and there's a place for that, but do not tell me for a minute that the Lord has laid some person or some cause on your heart, but they have never darkened the door of your home. That's sentimentality. We're talking about hospitality today, putting hands and feet on the thing and acting it out. I've been reading uh, Pilgrim's Progress lately, just this past week, and you have in Pilgrim's Progress this great scene where Christian, he finally meets his good friend, Faithful, and they begin to walk together on this journey. And while they're walking, um, Faithful meets another person, a man whose name is Talkative. And they get to talking, and Faithful runs back to Christian, and he says, Christian, I met this awesome guy. I love him. His name's Talkative. He agrees with everything that we care about. This is amazing. Um, He actually calls him, Faithful calls him, a very pretty man, which I take to be a 17th century compliment from one man to another. But Christian responds to that line about Talkative being a very pretty man, and he says... That is to them that have not thorough acquaintance with him, for he is best abroad, near home he is ugly enough. Do you know somebody who's beautiful abroad but ugly at home? I think in a lot of ways that is an apt description of the pastorate. I think there's a way in which the further I get from my house and the people that know me best, the more beautiful my Christian life appears. And Christian is saying to Faithful, this man is all talk. Faithful, he realizes that, he goes back to talkative, and he confronts him, and he says, Doth your life and conversation testify to the same? Or standeth your religion in word or in tongue, and not in deed and truth? Talkative, he's utterly offended by that confrontation. He stomps off, and Christian says to Faithful, I told you how it would happen. Your words and his lusts could not agree. He would rather leave your company than reform his life. This man is all talk. He agrees with everything you say, and he doesn't do an ounce of it in his life. In Matthew 25, when Jesus returns in a blink of an eye, and he separates the sheep from the goats, He is not going to say to us, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was a stranger, I am so glad that somebody had the courage to tweet about it. Jesus is going to return in a moment and he's going to find people talking about hospitality. He's going to find people doing Bible studies about hospitality. He's going to find the really spiritual in our midst, learning how to say the word hospitality in Greek. But is he going to find anybody doing hospitality? Words are cheap. Hashtags are cheap. Conferences are cheap. Do not talk about racial reconciliation as a concept. In fact, don't talk about it anymore at all. Do racial reconciliation at your dinner table. Don't talk about your views on immigration or the poor or the unborn at the expense of doing your views. Set the dinner table and serve up what you believe Let your life and your conversation testify to the same. Do they match each other? If all this feels particularly personal, like I hear this about hospitality and I look over the landscape of my life and I see I just don't have opportunities in this church to show hospitality and I don't find opportunities in the city to show hospitality, there is a next practical step for you and I to take today. I want to say to us, there's a really good book you can read about hospitality, because there are some great, great books. I want to say we're going to launch into a five-week series on hospitality, because that would be fantastic to study what the Bible has to say about hospitality. But I don't think we need any more talk right now. I think what we need is practical application. After the service is done, You can grab myself, you can grab our associate pastor, John, you can grab Bob, you can grab a elder or a deacon or a life group leader. And if you don't know who any of those people are, you can go right to the welcome table and they can direct you where you need to go. And we can, this week, Put you in a life group to practice hospitality inside this church. Maybe you haven't been assigned to one, maybe you're in one and you've been laxed in that. When you sit in a life group and you look around the room, you see the people that God is calling you to extend hospitality to within this church body. And we can also connect you to a ministry, if you don't have one, that matches your passion and your gifting to say, who are people in this city who I can have to my home, who cannot possibly afford me back in their home? I can extend that kind of hospitality. We can make that connection today. You might not have these people in your house this week, but you can begin to take this first step of rubbing shoulders with whom you can practice hospitality. And in the meantime, as you do that, the church leadership is going to fight tooth and nail to kill any program that threatens to infringe on the church's work of hospitality. If there's something that threatens to take you out of your home and having people in your home to get you to volunteer for some kind of machine we're doing, we can't afford to lose you in the ministry that you have within your home. You need to be there practicing Hebrews chapter 13. I want to close with this because I think that even as we hear that practical next step, even as we're prompted towards this, the moment the service is done, the devil is going to give us 50 reasons not to practice hospitality, right? He's going to give us really good reasons why this is not the right time. It's not the right season. I don't really have the house for this. I can't really afford this. He's got some incredible reasons to give us. And so I want to close with these thoughts that bridge the chapters that we've been studying. Do you know that when you serve buy low-brand macaroni and cheese to another person, that is an act that is going to last forever. Like when God shakes the universe and it dissolves and all its works are exposed for what they are, that act of hospitality is going to last forever. Do you know when you shove dirty laundry off the corner of a couch so that another person can sit down and you speak with that person, you're actually getting each other ready for a wedding banquet in which you will sit side by side and speak together about the glory of God forever? Do you know that when you prepare this week to host your life group, and you kind of wish that other people would take up some of the slack and host it as well, but it falls on you for now and it's coming and you're getting your home ready for it, do you know that that act is offering up to God worship with reverence and awe? And do you know that when you sit and look around your dinner table and you see seated there people who cannot possibly afford to have you back in their home, you have become Jesus to that person. The celestial city, the place where all of this is headed, is a place of hospitality. God Himself, He sets a table. God dresses his angels for a festal gathering. God, he hands out resurrected bodies and he throws open city gates and he welcomes us into a banquet. The celestial city is a place of hospitality because hospitality is heaven-like. When we do it, we practice what we will be doing forever in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us courage, give us humility, give us sacrifice to be a people who are hospitable to one another. Lord, let us take courage to open our homes. Let us take sacrifice to serve each other and our city. And in doing so, we proclaim the kingdom of God until he comes. Do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.